Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Rehardity works in lots of weird ways in other species, whether it's epigenetics in plants or cockroaches passing down bacteria to their eggs, and just as they pass down their own genes. CRISPR itself is something that bacteria pass down to their own offspring as a way of, in a sense, passing down energies of viral attackers. That was Carl Zimmer, award-winning science journalist and author. That's crazy. Did you know that cockroaches get passed down bacteria just like genes? No, I didn't. Actually, I learned a lot from Carl's new book, She Has a Mother's Love. Actually, Kevin, I've always been a fan of his writing. Carl is one of the reasons I got into science journalism. Yeah, it's great then that we had a chance to connect with him and chat about his book and his approach to science communication. Absolutely. I really enjoyed the rare opportunity to discuss his work with him. So let's get right into it now. First of all, I found your book extremely informative and also very entertaining at the same time. So congratulations on finding that difficult balance. So let's talk about the basics of how this book came to be. So heredity is no doubt a vast and very important topic. But was there a specific gap in information that you wanted to address through this book? I feel like heredity is is something that is incredibly important in our lives, but we don't really think about it uh, as much as we should and try to ask why it's so important. And this is all the more significant as as we're we're all starting to get our DNA sequenced and starting to use DNA to get clues about our ancestors. So, you know, I I sort of, I wanted to explore the the role that heredity has in our lives and then also talk about what science can actually tell us about what heredity really is. Right. As you mentioned about genome sequencing, so actually I found that section of your book particularly interesting, the effort of understanding your own genome sequence. So could you actually share how was the emotional aspect of the process? So did you have to mentally prepare yourself for, you know, finding out whatever you would about yourself and then share these findings in a book? Well, you know, I had been writing about DNA and genomes for gets over 20 years when a geneticist invited me to come to a meeting where you could actually get your whole genome sequenced. And so it was very exciting. But on the other hand, it's easy to be scared of the unknown. You know, in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have been too worried about it because I have pretty good health and my family history isn't too unusual. But, you know, I was anxious while I was waiting for the results. You know, I didn't really know how I would use this information in a book until I got it. It was a sort of strange experience to discover that I really didn't have any significant mutations that were linked to any particular disease. It it felt like, felt almost like a disappointment. There wasn't anything exciting to tell me about. But my genetics counselor pointed out to me that that's actually what you want to hear. You, you, You don't actually want to hear that you have a mutation that's going to cause some terrible disease. So after that, then I, I you know, once I was able to get hold of the genome myself, the raw data, then the real excitement began because I could really start to explore my genome with scientists to see 
see how research on genomes really works. Exactly. And so even the technological advance is amazing as well, right? Like, as you said, you've been covering this field for about 20 years. So you have actually witnessed right from discussions of or probably the early stages of sequencing the first human genome to actually getting your own genome sequenced. So would you like to comment about, in general, the advances in technology or like that technological journey that you have seen? I don't think anybody would have uh, predicted that DNA sequencing would have accelerated so fast. When the first human genome sequence was unveiled, it had been such a huge effort on the part of hundreds and hundreds of scientists. And so the idea that you could get your own genome sequenced with much more accuracy in just a matter of days, really, it was inconceivable. So, you know, the problem, however, is making sense of the genome has not accelerated at the same pace as DNA sequencing itself. So we have all of the sequence data, and we're still struggling to make sense of it. And so you still, you know, people will, people will discover that they have mutations in genes that are, you know, have been linked to cancer, but, you know, nobody knows whether, you know, some of these mutations cause cancer or not, which you don't know. And, and so, so interpreting the genome is still lagging far behind our ability to read the sequence. I don't know if artificial intelligence will accelerate that dramatically. If not, then it's going to be, it's going to be a slow road ahead. Right. That's also partly too for CRISPR, I think, like the tools are advancing so fast. And in your book as well, you talk about towards the end, this hype of designer babies. And I feel like a lot of discussions around CRISPR are always in extremes. It's, it has either the potential to, you know, make us immortal or just kill us all. So in your experience of working at the interface of public and scientists, do you find a huge difference in public perception versus what scientists are actually doing? Yeah, absolutely. There's a gigantic gulf. And it's too bad because I think too often the public has unrealistic expectations about what scientists can do. So that leads to resentment and disappointment when scientists can't immediately cure some disease. But then it also leads to all sorts of fears that scientists are going to be able to alter our entire species, you know, with a touch of a button. It just Biology is just a lot more complicated than all that, and you know, and, and so it's you know it's a challenge for us science writers to be able to talk about biology and biological research in a clear way where people can understand what's going on, but not to sort of leave the impression that it's incredibly simple or incredibly easy because it isn't. Yeah, absolutely, I agree, and I think that's really the nice part of the book. Like you present both sides and that's really great. So just as a follow-up to my previous question, like companies like Synthego, for instance, they are enabling CRISPR access to all researchers and this is going to accelerate CRISPR research even more. So in general, you know, just given the pace of CRISPR technology and how it's progressing, how does the future look like? I know that there is a gap between what public thinks and what scientists do, but still some of it is going to percolate into public's lives, right? So how do you think the future would look like? You know, I, I think that a lot of the most important uses of CRISPR may go unappreciated by the public. These days, there are experiments that are published on a regular basis that use CRISPR to 
try to get answers to very basic questions about life, you know, like which genes are essential for a human cell. And we couldn't really address that in the past, but now you know, scientists can just use CRISPR to just knock out every single gene in the same way in different cell lines and then take a look at what happens to the cell. And it's just, it's a very clear cut kind of experiment now. People, people, you know, a lot of the attention has been focused on the possibility of using CRISPR to alter the germline, to change heredity. And that's an important discussion to be having. But honestly, I, I, I have a hard time really imagining that CRISPR is going to be used much for that at all. I think it'll be, you know, I think the, the big applications will be doing experiments to understand the basic rules of biology, you know, maybe using it to come up with new varieties of food, crops, or, or other species. But I think the talk about designer babies is ultimately a big distraction. Right, right. I agree. So so it's not going to be like we are now in control of our heredity and the definition itself has to change or something, right? We are very far away from that. Yeah. Right. And yeah, one, just out of curiosity, one question was that, so I'm sure you learned a lot of new things during the process of writing this book. And was there anything in particular that was your, you know, wow, I had no idea about this moment? I had a lot of wow that's the fun thing about, you know, writing about this kind of stuff. You know, I, I think learning about the way that heredity works in other species was particularly fun because we learn about Mendel in high school. We, we basically just learn about that in humans and that's the end of it. But heredity works in lots of weird ways in other species, whether it's epigenetics in plants or cockroaches passing down bacteria their eggs and just as they pass down their own genes CRISPR itself is something that bacteria pass down to their own offspring as a way of in a sense passing down memories of viral attackers and so you know really getting to appreciate heredity in all its various forms across the tree of life was, was a lot of fun Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthago blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthago.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthago, produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. 